Hi, everyone. My name is Zuri Berry. I'm a journalist, consultant, and podcast producer. For the past 20 years, I've worked in newsrooms large and small and have done everything from freelance reporting to editing major newspapers and working in public media. During those 20 years, I've had an opportunity to get a pretty good understanding of the ebbs and flows of our industry. And I can say I have personally experienced some of the worst we have to offer. That includes layoffs, bankruptcy, and two acquisitions, all of which were destabilizing and disruptive. And every single time, those events were preceded by tremors in the market, or in the case of 2008, a full-blown recession. More on that in a moment. Now we're seeing more tremors in the market. Nothing exorbitant, at least yet, but more economists are forecasting a recession in the near future. Last week, former Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren said that it's, quote, quite likely the U.S. has a mild recession next year, end quote. That's driven by inflation up 8% in October, and that was good news, higher interest rates, and a tight labor market. We're here to discuss one thing, how to recession-proof your news business. This conversation is hosted by the Pivot Fund, so thank you to Tracy Powell, the Pivot Fund CEO, who has already earmarked $2 million to seven BIPOC-led news organizations in Georgia and is committed to giving $4 million more. But she also has this ambitious plan for the Pivot Fund to distribute $500 million nationally to Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led news outlets. So a double thank you for the work that you do, Tracy. And this conversation is sponsored by the Donald W. Reynolds Journalism Institute at the University of Missouri. And it stems from the deep concern for publishers and the growing angst over the current economic climate. So there's two sets of facts I'd like to share before we get started. First, as a reminder, during the last recession between September 2008 and February 2010, the U.S. lost more than 6 million jobs. The employment levels prior to the Great Recession weren't recovered until 2014, even though the vast majority of those jobs never came back to the news industry. Canada lost a net of 400,000 jobs, all of which is to say that donations and discretionary spending will change dramatically in a recession-like environment. And that has an outsized influence on the news business. The same is true of ad spending, which brings me to the second set of facts. After the 2008 recession, U.S. ad spending declined by some estimates at 30%. News publishers lost 27% of their ad revenue. Radio lost 22, magazines lost 18, and TV lost five. The only thing that was almost flat was digital with a 2% decline. So as you all know, many of these sectors of our industry did not recover. In fact, the fallout of the 2008 recession is that news publishers are conducting very different businesses today. The news business has shifted to focus primarily on securing subscriptions, memberships, donations, and grants while decreasing its dependency on advertising. So my concern, which I hope is your concern as well, is if we're experiencing some kind of economic decline, giving and new subscriptions will be among the first things that consumers cut from their spending. So to discuss the prospect of this challenging environment in front of us and what we can do about it, we've gathered this amazing group of panelists. 
And they include Mr. Justin Rushing. He is the Director of Growth and Partnerships at iNewsource in San Diego, California. Prior to that, he held positions as the Director of Advertising for the Daily Memphian and Contemporary Media and has served as a Digital Media Specialist and Marketing Consultant. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. We also have Ms. Anita Lee. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Green Line in Toronto, a bootstrap startup that launched just this year. She is a media consultant and journalism instructor. She sits on the board of directors for Lion, that is the local independent online news publisher association. And she has held numerous editing, reporting, and directorial positions across Canada and in New York. And we are also expecting Mr. Glenn Birkins. He is the founder and publisher of QCityMetro.com. That is Queen City for those who know in Charlotte, North Carolina. He has helmed Q City Metro since 2008. Prior to that, he served as the deputy managing editor at the Charlotte Observer and as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Philadelphia Inquirer, and St. Petersburg Times. I want to thank you all for being here. And thank you to the Reynolds Journalism Institute for sponsoring. At the end of this, we're going to open it up for some audience questions towards the end. Seeing how we're still waiting on Glenn, I want to get into the current state of affairs with our panelists. Anita, let me start with you because I want to ask you about starting up the green line. At this point in time, uh, as we're coming off the height of the pandemic, so the business environment is already difficult, but you obviously saw an opportunity. Can you give us a sense of what you're seeing as a new business? both the challenges and opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much for having me, Zuri and Tracy. It's an honor to be here. Um, so again, my name is Anita and I run a hyper-local independent news outlet based in Toronto that's all about investigating the way we live to help young and other underserved Torontonians survive and thrive in a rapidly changing city. So from the, um, the value proposition of a mission that I just shared with you, you can see a bit of the, uh, the potential that I saw in launching the outlet. So when I first started kind of laying the groundwork to launch my startup, which eventually debuted in April 2022, like earlier this year, I started actually at the beginning of the pandemic. So before, just slightly before March 2020, and I had a slow uh, rollout. So I had a soft launch that occurred um, in o October 2021 before the full website launch in April 2022. And the time I felt that Toronto is actually a, an oversaturated media market. It is the largest city in Canada. Um, there's like fantastic papers of record, including the Toronto Star and a lot of other emerging media startups that are uh, that were popping up in the city. So it's a very fair question. You're asking like why 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 now, especially during an era when during a time when the pandemic, a lot of publications were experiencing uh, downturns in the revenue, right? So if you remember that. So for me, I saw an opportunity to serve an underserved audience that had not yet been monetized by any sort of uh, other market alternatives or competitors in, in the Toronto media landscape. And um, underserved Torontonians are very, like, they're widespread across the city. So although Toronto itself is an oversaturated media market and is well served, there are a lot of news deserts or news donuts within the city. And for those of you who aren't familiar, news deserts are um, areas of a, a geographic area that is underserved by existing media although they have like a distinct population, like a side, usually a sizable population. And donuts are basically 
as the name implies, it's areas within like well-served media markets, but they're little pockets that are not well-served. And I grew up in an area, um, a suburb called Scarborough, which is an inner suburb in Toronto. It's uh, full of people of color. It's uh, largely working class and heavily racialized. So that was my experience growing up in the city. And I always felt like the news did not reflect the full nuance of my community that I grew up in. I actually really loved growing up in Scarborough, but oftentimes there would be stereotypes of crime, of crime and grime. So to me, I always saw, especially in the last few years when I worked at The Discourse, which is a community-driven publication based in D.C., I started to see and reframe certain markets. I saw, okay, like I understand this community, I understand this market, I understand underserved communities and born and raised in the city. So why not launch this now, especially when there's a need for it? Um, and yeah, that's uh, so kind of the cold book version. Thank you. Thank you. And I see we do have Glenn here with us. So thank you for joining us, Glenn. Apologize for being late. No, no worries. I'm just glad to have you here. Anita, can I just follow up on one one aspect of what you just said there? The opportunity, Absolutely. obviously, that, that uh, an underserved audience, obviously, that you want to respond to with the green yeah. line. What What is the business model that you guys are working off of? So the current business model is, um, I obviously, I want to diversify my revenue streams, but I have to be strategic because eventually I want to make sure that we're largely member-funded or subscription-based, and that's what we're moving towards. But in order to be able to be in a, a good financial position to support the infrastructure that a membership model needs, because it is a big commitment. You're, it's a very high touch. You're trying to really uh, deepen engagement and connection to your members. So it's not something that you just kind of say you're doing without really investing in it. So at this point, especially in the early phases, I, I um, had sponsorship funding from certain sources and also foundation funding from the Indian Beard Foundation, which is a foundation that supports um, that its mandate is focused on racial equity. So they often, they, they like the work that I do and they supported me. And I also bootstrap. So that's a big thing that I want to mention because I think I'm sure, you know, a lot of people of color can relate to this. Um, I didn't come from money. I couldn't, you know, borrow a bunch of money from my parents or anyone that I knew. Like I wasn't somebody who was like, you know, knew a bunch of rich people to call up. So I had to plan. And part of the plan, and I'll give you the short version of this is, um, I launched a newsletter called The Other Wave, which is an innovation newsletter that's focused on Canadian media market. And I knew that I understood diverse audiences. I knew that I understood engagement deeply. And I knew um, I had ideas for how to monetize those audiences. So I kind of, there's a trifecta of expertise that I had. And I started consulting organizations on that particular kind of trifecta um, of uh, just strategies effectively. And so through the consultation, the consultancy that I founded in the newsletter that I founded, which was back in 2019, after I left my last full-time job, I was able to generate enough money to be able to invest about $20,000 into my own company. Um, and I can stretch a, I can stretch a budget. I can make money go really far. So even though the initial funding that I was able to get wasn't a huge amount, um, I, the way I was able to manage it, it's almost inherent. It's like I taught, I was taught budgeting when I was a kid and I'm a child of immigrants. My, my, my parents were really, really, really good about, they also had their own business. My, my parents also had their own business as well. So I was able to see firsthand how to, to be able to responsibly run a, a small business like my father has. So that's kind of the trajectory. It's not, it's not, you know, the type of story that you hear in venture, um, where, you know, you, raise a bunch of money and you get valued 
um, your company gets valued at a whole a high amount. Like this is a different kind of trajectory and story that I feel is really important to share to, uh, with other people who are in similar circumstances as a um, who don't have the networks and and don't come with like the money in their families. Yeah, and and like many other news entrepreneurs who are probably in the Pivot Funds audience here, obviously you you have to show what you can do before people do want to invest and support in in all of those things. Money isn't just thrown your way on an idea or on a whim. So I we certainly appreciate that. Justin, let me ask you about your current view of the landscape right now. And and let me just uh, uh, double team, if you will, this question, Justin. What's going on right now at iNewsSource in terms of your revenue and sustainability at this point of the year? Sure. Um, I think right now um, our publishers are in a very interesting place within the landscape of the industry to figure out ways to get uh, more readers to engage with their content. Uh, you know, it used to be a one-to-one people pick up a newspaper or people go to a website. I think now you have these, uh, or you have so many different channels in which one can engage with you. So it's really looking at your audience, uh, looking at how they engage currently, looking at how they're current, uh, they're engaging with, um, other media outlets, uh, how they're engaging with anything that's related to media, you know, how people are doing everything, you know, create the behavior and it's a journey involved in it. So. For us, we're really trying to dive in deep to be able to understand uh, where our active readers are and where our potential readers are in the marketplace and be able to hone in and uh, increase our uh, engagement strategies to drive more readers to all of our content through web, email, and social. Uh, As that pertains to revenue, uh, right now we're in the process of building a foundation to our earned revenue model. Uh, right now, uh, primarily our funding comes straight through our uh, foundations, uh, annual donors, monthly donors, uh, and so forth. Um, but with this new strategic focus, you know, we're looking to uh, build uh, and expand our audience to be able to support our earned revenue model, which will come through uh, events, um, community forums, seminars, um, as well as building an advertising platform uh, through our website. Um and some other things I can't yet to speak on. So uh, those are the things that we're looking at, uh, you know, to be more sustainable, to be able to uh, build our revenue model to, uh, you know, complement our fundraising model. And Justin, you sound like your organization, iNewsource, is sort of similar to where other nonprofits are, really building out and expanding upon those monthly donations and annual donations and, and foundation gifts that you guys receive. Uh, iNewsource is a fantastic outlet for investigative journalism if you haven't checked it out. Can you also give us a sense of what a day like Giving Tuesday means to nonprofits like iNewsource? Yes. um, I mean, this is a big part of the year for us to be able to increase the awareness of who we are, the work that we've uh, been able to publish throughout the year. Uh, as well as a uh, opportunity to re-engage, um, you know, our existing donor base um, and showing where their funding has gone. I mean, we've done some tremendous investigations and some tremendous uh, accountability work uh, that we like to highlight. But, you know, our, our donors are our cheerleaders as well. Um, you know, they sing our praises and they are able to help us align, uh, you know, other funders uh, similar to them who appreciate the work that we're doing. Um, so we kicked off, um, you know, this giving season by participating in the local um, campaign initiative called San Diego Gives. 
uh, and which was very successful for us. Um, this year, uh, our director of philanthropy uh, is launching our investigative news fund, um, in which we have a goal of uh, raising $500,000, uh, in which we've already secured uh, 50% of it uh, um, as we kick off. So uh, this is a huge part for us. We're excited about it uh, to be able to engage um, you know, active donors and potential donors locally, for sure. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. And, and glad to see that you guys are so well on your way at this point of the year. G Glenn, let me bring you in here. I started this by talking a little bit about the prior recession and what that impact was in terms of both jobs, but also in terms of the news industry and I, recognition that we, our business is not the same as it once was. You launched Q-City Metro back in 2008, right? At the beginning yeah, of yeah. all of this. So you know what it's like to launch in a challenging market. Can you tell us about those early days? And I think for everyone here, they're probably interested in the how. That is, how did you earn revenue at that time? And how did you survive as a new business owner? We are a uh, for-profit model. And I can definitely relate to what, what uh, Anita was saying uh, as you pointed out, we launched in 2008 uh, in the middle of the Great Recession, the worst, uh, the worst economy since the Great Depression. Uh, and on top of that, this whole concept of uh, local media, local independent media was brand new. Uh, advertisers were not sure what to make of it. It is much, much easier to get advertisers today than it was then. Uh, there, there were no, uh, foundations at that point, uh, looking to give, uh, money to media startups. Uh, I essentially funded it myself. Uh, I would estimate that, uh, during that recession, I probably put $300,000 of my own money into, uh, launching Q city Metro, hiring people, keeping it going. Uh, I didn't take a salary myself. Uh, it was it was extremely difficult. And given that experience and what you're saying in terms of the last couple years in this challenging market with the pandemic, what's your view of our current economic landscape? I'm concerned. I uh, when I I uh, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Uh, I'm seeing more and more layoffs, especially in the tech sector, but I but I'm starting to see more layoffs in other parts of the economy. Uh, it does appear that we are that that we very well could be heading for a recession. I, uh, we're clearly not there yet. And uh, people who are much smarter than I am are saying they think we may be able to achieve a soft landing. Uh, but uh Things are not looking good. And uh, for that reason, uh, we're having conversations with our team now about uh, about belt tightening, things that we may have. Uh, when things are going well, you tend to focus on revenue. You tend to focus on how much money can we bring in. Uh, when things are not going well economically, you also have to think about where can we tighten our belt. So we're trying to have those conversations now before things become uh, problematic. And let's just get right into that then. What, what is that conversation like with your staff? 
Well, uh, it's an ongoing conversation. We had a conversation just this morning, in fact, about that. It's not, uh, I've made clear that the people who are on our team, we will look to keep uh, on our team at all costs. But there are other areas that we may have to uh, tighten. Uh, you know, everything, uh, everything, uh, we're going to be looking at everything from our tech stacks. What are, what are we, what do we really need? What are we paying for that we may not be using, uh, to, uh, you know, team lunches, uh, you know, those, you know, you know, those, those add up, uh, we're looking at, uh, uh, our, our insurance policies. Can we can we squeeze a little bit more money out of out of our insurance policies while still giving our our employees a uh, you know what they need in terms of health insurance? So everything from top to bottom, we're we're kind of looking at because what we don't want to do is lay anyone off. And so we're talking about shifting more work to freelancers rather than hiring. There is no hiring at this point with Q City Metro. Uh, anything that, that we're looking to do, we're, we're looking to do through contract workers until we have a little better idea where the economy's going. Anita, let me bring you in here. I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well, because keeping costs under control is so important to this story. You know, as news publishers, we love our subscriptions, you know, our tools, as Glenn pointed out, our tech stacks, we add to them constantly. <laughs> And it's no fun talking about cutting any of that. What are some of the ways that news publishers can be, I guess, more disciplined around costs? And Glenn has, has offered his thoughts here. Anita, I'd like to hear yours. And Justin, if you have any thoughts as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about launching a news business uh, uh, before the pandemic and then, you know, kind of it in some ways like scaling up. We're not going to be scaling up, but kind of uh, we're at this critical point. We're going to be producing more output. And I have some strategic partnerships coming in 2023 during a recession. Is, it's kind of interesting because you're already in this cost-saving mindset or at least a, a mindset of prudence. And so I already started to think about these things well before the recession. And one thing that I've done is I often like I take kind of a portfolio approach to my career and in other areas of my my career, including as a teacher and consultant, I actually leverage leverage some of the uh, the benefits that I have from those areas of my career into uh, into the green line, and I'll explain a bit in just a second. One of those is actually staffing. So I have a I have about nine folks on my team, um, three of whom are part time staff, and then the rest who I describe as fellows, who are interns, who are very advanced. They're either like uh, top graduates in their final year or new. Uh, top students, J school students in the final year or top grads, fresh grads. So what I actually do is I have a three-month fellowship contract where I pay them half monetarily and half an in-kind consultation. So this is, and it's based on a livable wage in the province of Ontario. So we have provinces in Canada, those are equivalent to states in the U.S. Um, and livable wage in our province is $22 an hour. So I calculate the full amount for how much they work for the entirety of the three months and then I divide that up into monetary compensation and then in-kind consultation. And I always explain to them, obviously it's consent-based. If they don't like the offer, they can walk away. Um, oftentimes, um, it's it's actually something that they really receive well because of the fact that I am a full-time consultant. That's actually how I make my main living. And it's not a throwaway. It's something where I can help them on things that are not green line related, whether it's, you know, 
like helping them with their graduate school essays, um, like coaching them on, you know, how to adjust their resumes, just things that will help early career journalists. So that has been a really kind of uh, beneficial arrangement with my fellows. Um, and it's been really effective since I, I launched the publication. So that's one way of actually cost, uh, cost, uh, cutting or cost saving without, you know, damaging relations with your, your team or your staff. Um, and the other thing that I want to mention in terms of learning connections is that I'm an instructor at multiple uh, colleges, uh, one in New York City University in New York, and then two here in Toronto, Toronto Metropolitan University and Centennial College. And oftentimes they, there's, I have direct pipelines to some of the best students who can then serve as unpaid interns because they get a, a, a credit. So they're not being exploited or anything of that nature. Um, or I develop some sort of really positive relationship with them. So they're really excited about the work that we do with the Green Line and then more willing to take on the fellowship. Uh, that's like half in kind consultation and half monetary compensation. So just creative ways of thinking through your resources and leveraging your partnerships to benefit, you know, just kind of uh, leverage those cost uh, savings is uh, a good approach to take. That's really interesting and, and innovative, I would say. I haven't heard that yeah. before. So very cool. Yeah. J- Justin, any thoughts in terms of uh, keeping costs under control as as you're thinking about things? Yeah. Um, I could speak about where we are organizationally. Anita kind of touched on, we, we have a, an initiative to always want to work with young media professionals. And we've been very successful in landing some great reporters to report for America, uh, who've been doing some great work with us and, uh, some of which have, uh, you know, transitioned to full-time roles with us, um, you know, since going through that program. And then also, uh, you know, we, we always, uh, look to onboard interns to be able to work with them hands-on and give them hands-on experience through our product as well. Uh, we recently just hired, uh, a new content manager, uh, as well as a new product manager in, in which we prior to that had an audience engagement editor who was focused around both content and product. But we feel at this point to be able to realign our focus strategically. Uh, we definitely needed, you know, one person devoted to maximizing the value of the content and another person devoted to maximizing the value of the product. Um, so that rounds out uh, our staff from a full-time capacity. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, being more cost efficient, I mean, Glenn touched on it. You know, we're looking at everything that we're doing, uh, you know, as far as where we're spending money when it comes to our tech stack, you know, different services and, you know, third-party partnerships that we have. You know, it, you know, are there opportunities that we could get those same services for cheaper? We definitely want to be able to look at that objectively. Uh, but then also just looking at what we're doing from a workflow standpoint. You know, I think we we become so dependent on technology to do things that people can do. Right. So I think we always want to be able to look at what our workflow is and figure out ways that we can you know, readdress those things. And if it can save us money, you know, we go in that direction opposed to looking at it just from a convenience standpoint. Um, and wanted to add something that may or may not, you know, increase our efficiency. You know, uh, when we look at spending uh, for our tech stack, we're always looking at ways to be able to increase automation uh, as well as uh, effectiveness. And so, you know, we kind of look at it from that standpoint. And, you know, within the team of people that I manage, we we have a slogan, you know, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. So, you know, we always look at everything, you know, uh, what I feel is the right way before we pull the trigger on anything. You know, in, in past newsrooms I've been in, the the fight has been over. Well, we already have Microsoft Teams, and it handles this communication thing. And we also have Slack. Like, why do we have both? The IT guys would always come back and say, oh, cut the Slack. And then, uh, of course, there's that um, 
tussle, if you will, in the newsroom about what tool we want to use and why. And so it's difficult conversations all around. And I imagine you guys are having those as well. Let me stick with you here, Justin, and ask you, given your experience and your connection with advertisers and ad buyers, what are you hearing from them about how they're planning to move into 2023? I think most ad buyers are going to move into 2023 pretty much how they moved coming out of the pandemic. I think the pandemic allowed a lot of media buyers to look at their budget and to kind of look at ROI across the board to see where they were getting the greatest benefit. And, you know, when you look at small publishers, they normally don't have a lot of national advertisers unless they're doing something from a digital space programmatically. But um, it's, it's one of those things when budgets are cut, you know, it prompts, you know, media buyers to look at, you know, where they're spending their dollars. So uh, my advice to people on the advertising side is be flexible, you know, with your long-term spenders, figure out ways to be able to keep them in the fold on what you're doing. Look at ways that you can incentivize. I, I mean, I'm not saying, uh, you know, decapitate your product, uh, you know, by any means, but, you know, look at ways that, you know, you can keep those relationships going and being able to come up with different, you know, advertising specials that allow them to have visibility across all of your platforms. I think Media buyers appreciate that when they see that because it's uh, it's something that is affecting people on both sides of the spectrum. So it's like, where do we meet in the middle? How can we meet in the middle? How can we continue to keep you as an advertising client? And what can we do to earn your money from a media buying standpoint? I think that's the biggest thing. And ROI is big. You know, I highly encourage you know anybody on the advertising side of things to always be looking at what your product is yielding through performance reporting. You know, having those conversations more frequently now, because I mean, you know, across the landscape, there's just so many different ways that people can spend their money when it comes to advertising. Mm-hmm. And, you know, local media has to do a little bit more than what national media and, you know, some of these untraditional media platforms have to do just based off of what they can offer. But, you know, you know, relationships are irreplaceable. And, you know, once you forge their relationship, I think you have a good chance to be able to maintain it. Um, I wanted to second what uh, Justin said. Sure. Uh, it's it's really and truly about relationships, especially on a local level. Um, and that's something that it took me a long time to figure out. Uh, there's a saying that when the economy turns bad, marketing is the first thing co- companies cut. And there's some and there's some truth to that. As smaller publishers we have to really work hard to make ourselves that much more valuable to our uh, advertisers or our sponsors, whatever we have. Um, and so, you know, that's part of our conversation as well. How can we, how can we deliver just a little bit more for their marketing dollar so that uh, when they sit down or, or if they sit down uh, to, to figure out what media they're going to cut, how do we figure out a way that that you know we're at the uh, we're at the bottom of that list and not at the top of that cut list? Uh, very good points, and uh, gotta emphasize the relationship here in all of this. Glenn, let me let me stick with you for just a moment here. What's the worst case scenario for you in any kind of economic downturn? Or put another way, what are you counting on that needs to go right? Well, I guess in a perfect world, the uh, economy would not go into recession. Or if it does go into recession, 
it would not be a deep recession. We're not, we're in a pretty good place. I think we're in a place where we can uh, handle a moderate recession that doesn't stretch on too long. Uh, during the during the good times, we uh, we were able to put a, put aside some reserves. One of the strategies that I always had when we would get a grant is I would never spend our grant money on personnel. I would always invest that money in a way that hopefully it would bring in more revenue rather than, as they say, rather than eating your seed corn, I wanted to plant that corn so that it would grow more corn rather than going out, hiring a bunch of people. Then when the grant's gone, well, how do I, how do I keep them on staff? And so we've had some, we've had some luck at that. We've, we've grown some areas of our business, uh, by, uh, investing some of the grant money we've gotten over the years. And uh, rather than growing fast or rather than hiring as many people as we could, uh, we, we were able to put, a, put aside some, some reserves. So, so I think we're fairly well suited uh, for, for a recession, uh, provided it's not too deep and it doesn't last too long. Uh, Anita, same question for you. What's the worst case scenario for you or what, what needs to go right? I mean, if it's a tough question for me to answer at this stage in the, de- the development of the Green Line, because I feel like I need to go through, I feel like I need, I need to go through like a full season of being a media owner before I can appropriately say that. Um, I, I mean, hopefully this isn't a cop-out answer, but I, I don't know if there's a worst case scenario. I, I think I have the mindset of because I'm bootstrapping this, because I'm just starting out, I don't necessarily have a worst case scenario in mind as of yet. To me, in some ways, like it, it's kind of a counterintuitive thing to think about, but because I'm launching in a recession in some ways that, that allows, it, it, in some ways it eases the pressure. But strangely, I know there's like a lot of barriers that I have to face, but um, starting a media business at any t- at any time has its challenges, especially as somebody, like I said, doesn't come from money. Um, so for me, I actually think it's just uh, in some ways, if I'm able to emerge um, and survive the next the, the next season and eventually get to sustainability, I, I feel like it'll be even more of a coup, if that makes sense. I know that's not quite like the, maybe the answer you're looking no, for. No, but I think it speaks to that entrepreneurial mindset that you need to have, you know, sort of bend yeah. down the houches yeah. and let's see, let's just make our way through. And actually we're, we're going to get to that in just a second, but let, let, let's, uh, let's keep this conversation going and, and talk about some tactics here. And, and, you know, Justin, you, you were talking about this a little bit and I, and I'd like to peel this open just a little bit more about incentivizing your, relationships and with those advertisers or funders or donors. Can you talk a little bit more about what that might look like and how news publishers could create those incentives for folks to stick with you through any kind of economic downturn? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think when we look at what your product offering is, you know, usually we normally have advertisers who are buying one out of the three things that, you know, we offer or two out of the five things that we offer. So I think looking at uh, where you are on capacity and, you know, where you can be a little bit more flexible to be able to 
give these, you know, active advertisers a chance uh, to be able to try some new things with you. I think product pairing is a great way to incentivize, you know, active advertisers. Uh, I think new business as well. Um, I always feel like when you go out and you can get an advertiser on one month and they never advertise again, I mean, I think that doesn't benefit you or the advertiser in that case. So I think when you look at being able to offer small, you know, small discounts on three month commitments uh, and, you know, being able to, you know, offer them some visibility to get going with you so they can see your value and give you a chance to, you know, work with them one on one and consulting with them, helping them come up with their ad message, helping them develop their ad creative that gives you that opportunity to be able to develop their relationship for a longstanding relationship. So I think those two things play hand to hand. I think uh, one, you have to have a consultative approach and I think you have to be mindful about your product and be intuitive to your product on what it can do based on what your capacity is and what you can be flexible on and what you want to sell and offer from an incentive-based standpoint. Nice. Thank you for that. Uh, Glenn, let me ask you, uh, for organizations like yours that are also grant funded, what opportunities are there to be better stewards of the funds that you receive? Well, I think I touched on one. Um, if you get, if you're fortunate enough to get a grant, uh, in my opinion, the worst thing you can do is, is just kind of fritter that money away you know, or go out and go on a, go on a hiring spree. Because sooner or later, that grant money is going to be gone and you've got to keep those people on, on your payroll, or, or at least you certainly want to keep those people on your payroll. So I guess I would give three pieces of advice. First, uh, look for ways to spend that money wisely in ways that it will grow and it will, and it will bring in more revenue. Uh, and my philosophy has always been that I want to run Q City Metro on its on its operating revenues and not on the grant money. The grant money I get is for investing in the future. That is for new new and in, new initiatives that we think will bring in more revenue a year, two years, three years down down the road. Uh, I don't know if it was Sam Walton with Walmart or someone else who said. If you if you pay attention to the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. So when we talk about things like uh, reviewing your uh, tech stack to see uh, if you're using all the products you've you know you've signed up for. In our case, we've been in business 14 years. We've signed up for a lot of you know a lot of things in 14 years. So we so we have to go through every now and then and say, is this something we're really using? Is there is there a is there a free or lower cost option? Paying attention to the pennies so that the dollars can take care of themselves. The other thing that we do, as I mentioned, or that one other thing that we're preparing to do that I mentioned is we do have, fortunately, we're able to have a reserve now. Up until now, that money has just sat in a checking account because there was nothing else to do with it. You want to keep it safe. You don't want to tie it up into, into something that's going to be speculative or whatever. And so it sat in a checking account earning 0% interest because there was just nowhere else to go. But as the Fed has raised interest rates, uh, we're starting to see some 
fairly short-term CDs, three months, six months that are paying four and close to 5%. So we are working with our accountant now to set up in a, set up a brokerage account so that we can put some of that money in a place where it, it will actually earn interest. You don't want to tie it up long-term because this is money you might need. So, so we're talking about uh, staggering our reserves, some of it in, in perhaps three-month CDs, maybe some in six-month CDs. Maybe we'll go out a year on a smaller amount so that that money is not just sitting there, so that it's working for us. So when you put all of those things together, uh, you know, I think that's what Sam Walton meant about paying attention to the pennies so that the dollars will take care of themselves. The other thing that I would say is that when I first launched the business, I thought I could do way more than I could do. And one of the smartest things I did, and I wish I had learned it from the very beginning, was to invest in a in an accountant. Someone who can help me think through these things, someone who who someone who who can advise me. We save tens of thousands of dollars a year because our accountant said you're uh, organized wrong for, for tax purposes. If you change the way you're organized, you would pay a lot less in tax. So we did that and we're paying a lot less in tax. So even, even if she did nothing else, she's paid for herself just, just in that. So invest in someone who knows more about business and accounting and taxes, you know, someone who can, who can be a partner, someone who can hold your hand and look over your, Look over your books each month and say, here's a, you know, here's an area where I think you can cut. Uh, you're out of line in this area. I think you're paying a little more over here than I think you should. So, uh, you know, once again, if you if you if you pay attention to the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. Glenn, thank you. All, all, lots of great points there. And uh, <laughs> the accounting one, it, it always strikes me because it's something that um, even for solopreneurs, if you will, it's a big one. And if for nothing else, Zurich, it just relieves such a headache. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even if you save nothing, <laughs> which you will, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just taking that headache off your plate so that you can focus on the things you're good at. I'm not good at bookkeeping, yeah. and I know that. And so I don't, want to, I don't want to put that on my plate. Gotcha. Anita, what opportunities do you see for news orgs to evolve their business strategy or provide some form of innovative approach at the very least at this point in time, given all of what we've discussed here? Well, I'll talk about, I have a lot of consulting clients across North America through my consultancy the other way, so I can talk about what I've seen there. But I just want to say, man, like everything that's coming out of Glenn's mouth is like gold. I'm just taking notes in the corner over here from somebody who's such an expert um, and that accountant comments so resonated with me because I'm actually in the process of getting a bookkeeper right now. And it's like, it's like, oh, finally. Um, so in terms of what I'm seeing in terms of uh, uh, consulting clients, a lot of folks are investing in diversity, equity, inclusion, and not for the reasons that you may think. In fact, a lot of it has to do with trying to diversify the audiences that they're serving, because obviously when you actually open yourself up to more audiences, there's more opportunities to monetize folks that you might not have served before. So one thing, one thing that was apparent during the pandemic were community focused publications that really developed relationships, which has been a the theme of this webinar so far, 
have deepened relationships with their audience members and the community members are just just have really trusting, engaged relationships with them, survived better and thrived better during the pandemic. So one thing that I've been consulting folks on in addition to DEI is uh, connecting that to the, the to a membership model. And a membership model is is fantastic because during recession times, you know, corporate sponsorship can dry up, foundation funding can dry up. But, you know, even if you have some attrition and lose some members, individual members on the whole, like if you're continuing to deliver meaningful journals and to your audience members, you still have a large pool of individual contributors sustaining you at your core, which is why having a really great, uh, like, like a, a really robust revenue stream that's membership focused is something that I've seen a lot of publications moving towards, um, especially since ad revenue. And this kind of dovetails with the decline of digital ad revenue um, as well. So I know that publications, even before the recession, were really keen on kind of uh, like just strengthening their membership and subscription offerings. Let me ask this for you first, Anita, and then obviously open it up to others here. Uh, let's say this recession does occur. And again, we, we've only sort of got hints of it and there's sort of these prognosis that are out there, but... Like Glenn said, a lot of smart, a lot of people who are smarter than I am are certainly expecting this, which is why we're doing this webinar. How do you prepare yourself to come out on the other side of it? And what are you telling those clients, by the way? So to prepare uh, to get out on the other side, I mean, I think it's just being prudent about your cash flow. I mean, there's a couple things like I, the one thing that really resonated that uh, what Glenn said was not. Like investing in the infrastructure of your company as opposed to it's to as opposed to staff because you're really focusing on how to um, uh, just uh, su support revenue generation, right? Because if during recession time you can't afford to hire staff, they're all completely gone, and you haven't invested in your core business, then that's going to be an issue. So that's the one thing that I'm really focused on, um, and you know, it remains to be seen for me because I, I like I said, I haven't gone through a full season of my business yet. So that's something that I'm really focused on. Um, I, I got actually a recent a, an injection of grant funding from uh, the Google News Initiative Equity Fund, and I am like one of the first things I was doing is actually investing in a bookkeeper and accountant um, rather than kind of diverting that to content production. So that's that's one thing. Justin, yourself, how do you prepare your org and your colleagues for maybe coming out on the other side of a potential recession? I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, for us right now, we're, we're so entrenched on trying to build a better relationship with our readers as well as creating a better reader experience. And I'm not saying that we're overlooking the recession. I think um, we want to advance our product in ways to be able to maintain the funding that we are getting and to create new ways to be able to generate earn revenue. I mean, I will say, from you know, and it's conversations that we're having, you know, and Luol is, and I think Glenn kind of touched on it is, you know, uh, where are we, uh, you know, doing any ill-advised spending? How can we clean it up? How can we get in front of that? How can we prepare for that? Right now, you know, we're, you know, we're staffed to the point to where we've reached our staffing goal and we have everyone in place to do the work that we want to do. So I guess the biggest thing for us, you know, right now is to be able to stay in front of donors to be able to have those ongoing conversations and prove value through our product and hoping that we can continue to sustain, you know, those philanthropic dollars that we do receive. 
And looking at a, you know, recession, I mean, of course, the foundation dynamic for, you know, those publishers who rely on that funding, you know, that's something to be very weary of. Uh, but I think, you know, we kind of touched on a lot of these things, you know, already in this conversation. I think it's just being mouth and being aware and knowing, uh, you know, where to pivot. Uh, no pun intended, Tracy. Uh, you know, just 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 being mindful of everything. And I think Glenn, you know, touched on it earlier. For publishers, the focus is always revenue until it's not. <laughs> and so you just have to be, you know, you know, mindful and aware. You know, uh, I don't know if I'm directly answering your question, but, uh, you know, it's business as usual at the end of the day is to be able to put out a good product. And I feel like the rest will take care of itself, to be honest with you. I think you uh, underscored the main point now that we're hearing over and over again, which is continue to invest in relationship building, which is what you guys are doing right now at iNewsSource. So that sounds good to me. That answered the question. Uh, Glenn, let me let me come back to you now and ask you about both coming out on the other side, but any sort of final thoughts or recommendations that you might have for news publishers out there that are in a similar situation as we all are going to find ourselves in? Well, I guess I would say that business is about numbers. Uh, it's easy, in my case at least, after a long career as a journalist, I launched thinking about, with a journalist mindset, thinking about the news. It took a, it took a while for me to realize that, that business is really about numbers. It's about cash flow. It's about, it's about making sure that more money is coming in than going out. And, and it's, and it's really as simple as that. I mean, we don't, I'm not staffed to at the level where I would like to be. You know, they, they say that people who live through the great recession, that it really impacted them and how they think of money and how they, or whatever. Uh, I don't want to compare myself to that, but having having worked through the great recession where I saw a lot of my personal income or my personal savings go out the window. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I probably put at least, at least uh, $300,000 into it during those early years. And that's not some, and you know, I'll be honest, that's not, you know, you know, try telling your wife that, you know, you're going to write another check to the company that's not bringing any money. So, that left a, and that left an indelible impression on me. I don't ever want to get back to the place where I'm having to put in my personal resources to make this business run. I don't want to get back to a place where we're depending on any outside sources other than our operating income to make it run. And so, um, it's about budgeting. It's about watching those numbers, knowing where you are, having a budget, having a roadmap. Here's how much money we plan to spend this year on this and this on salaries. Here's how much money we plan to spend on technology, however you define that. Here's how much money we plan to spend on benefits or, you know, wh however you look at that. And uh, making sure that you stick to that budget making sure that you project income, look down the road and see, uh, uh, you know, I know for a fact that we've got, you know, this contract that 
that they've said they're going to renew. And we've got that contract they said they're going to renew. And this one is already signed a renewal, but we haven't gotten the money yet. And try to project revenue down the road so you can see where you're going. You know, once again, it's about it's about numbers. Business is about numbers. Uh, at the end of the day, whether you're running a news operations or a tech company or ma or making cars, and so I and so I guess that would be the advice that I would offer. Uh, keep your eyes on those numbers and make sure you have more coming in than going out. And I want to make sure we have time. We got we just got a question in. I want to make sure I get this in before we run out of time here. Uyosa, and she says, speaking broadly, what do folks think the Pivot Foundation, like Knight, have made towards supporting models instead of local newsroom? Has the Pivot actually hurt minoritized news leaders covering underserved communities? I can jump in there, actually, Zuri, because sure. I read the piece that this person's referring to in the Neiman Lab, and I think it's a really interesting conversation because... I serve on two boards for Online News Association, as you mentioned, Lion. And Lion's does fantastic programming. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but I actually joined the board because I felt like they were actually delivering programming that was so tailored to the needs of local independent publishers like myself. So it's, I would actually, I would, I think my answer is more nuanced. I actually think it would be great if foundations made direct investments into individual news organizations, of course. But I actually think in some ways investing in the ecosystem is the way to go, right? So here in Canada, the very different media ecosystem than in the States, the digital independent digital media upstarts are kind of, it's a burgeoning ecosystem. Well, usually it, Canadian media is quite consolidated and centralized. So this is a new phenomenon. So investing in the models and resources that support the ecosystem is a way to actually ensure longevity and sustainability of uh, all local independent news uh, media outlets down the line. Um, so I think it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, yeah, I wouldn't cast that as, oh, no, it's a terrible thing that all, like a, a lot of funding is going to these intermediate organizations because they're doing really good work. And they're the reason why this ecosystem oftentimes has, have existed. And myself, I'm part of these organizations and I also run an, an independent local media organization. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. Gotcha. I hope that answered your question. Uh, Anita, while we have you on, do you have any final thoughts here? Um, I mean, Noah said I, I, I enjoyed this conversation so much. I learned so much from Justin and Glenn, uh, truly. Um, and I think the one takeaway that I, I'd like to give everybody who's listening is that I'm somebody who started off, like I already explained my background. I was a journalist. I'm not somebody who actually intuitively love numbers, but I knew that what I want to do was support my local democracy by filling in a gap. And so there were so many resources and so many kind of existing kind of support organizations that like make it a lot easier to launch your own independent entrepreneurial uh, news outlet um, that I really encourage folks, even if you're having some trepidation or you're nervous about your own acumen, um, there are a lot of supports these days. And I think there needs to be more racialized media leaders out there. So I really encourage folks to take the plunge because it's something that I never imagined in my life that I would do because I always thought I was just going to be a journalist. Um, and now on the publishing side, but I'm so happy for it because now I'm creating, I can like I'm creating, um, you know, employment opportunities for folks um, who are underserved. I'm doing something that is helping my local democracy. So it just is super fulfilling. And I'm also building a lot of skills as well. So just wanted to add that. 
very fulfilling. Justin, any final thoughts? Um, no, not right off. I, you know, I appreciate you guys inviting me to be a part of this terrific panel. Um, I learned a lot, you know, as Anita mentioned, uh, I think Glenn makes some really good points and looking at what Anita's doing with the green line, definitely. And we'll continue to follow what you're doing now even more closely, but, uh, no final thoughts. Uh, you know, it's an uphill battle, you know, um, you know, as we all know, as publishers and working within this ecosystem. So, you know, all I can say is just continue to fight a good fight. Well, thank you, Justin. And I believe Tracy, Tracy wanted to answer that question that came up in the chat, but she was muted. Oh, go ahead, Tracy. Well, sorry, I'm multitasking. I'm tweeting and everything else. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I saw that article, too, about um, intermediaries. I actually thought it was a very good, solid piece of conversation that our industry has has and needs to have. Um, there are... Uh, a lot of different kinds of intermediaries. So I think that the article may not have made a, a great enough distinction about um, the different kinds of intermediaries. The Pivot Fund actually invests in capacity building. So we provide dollars directly to the local newsroom, um, transformational dollars directly to the, to the local newsroom um, so that they can um, hire capacity. To, to me, capacity means people. Hire the right people to do the right jobs to help generate revenue that helps make that organization more sustainable. We also we do it in such a way that is renewable over a certain amount of time. Um, and we, we kind of layer that with additional wraparound services, coaching, mentorship, um, tech, those kinds of things so that, you know, you have um, exactly what you need in, in becoming more sustainable. So I wanted to just make that point that all intermediaries are not the same. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to Tracy and the work that she uh, is doing and has done. Uh, you're, you're making a difference. And so thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Um, I see a comment, one more. Oh, I just realized you used the word pivot, but I definitely didn't mean to call y'all out. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I was wondering if you meant to say the pivot fun in full. <laughs> That's it for our time. I, I want to thank all of our wonderful panelists for giving us their time and insights. And if you're so inclined, please check out thegreenline.to qcitymetro.com and inewsource.org to see the phenomenal work that these organizations are doing that are represented here. And please, please, please check out rjionline.org to see the wonderful programs that the Donald W. Reynolds Journalism Institute is putting on. Lastly, you can support the Pivot Fund by visiting thepivotfund.org or by checking out the Pivot Fund store on Bonfire. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Tracy, for letting me moderate. And please have a wonderful evening. And if you take anything away from this, build relationships and watch your numbers. And for me, I'll say, stay ready. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.